This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. I'm Eric. Hey, Eric. Hey, Tomahome. Hey, Scott. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good morning. Good. Welcome to our discussion of The Space Merchants by uh, Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth. Um, and also known as Gravy Planet. Gravy Planet, right, right. Yep. Yeah, I, I, was, I was noticing, I, I was following um, Gravy Planet a little bit while listening to the audiobook, and uh, there was a lot of differences there. Yeah, quite a few little changes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was revised in the novel version, I suppose? I was reading uh, Frederick Pohl's blog about um, how they did the revisions. It sounded like they did it over the phone mm-hmm. with Valentine books. And, um, and then maybe were sent the the final draft, and just they signed off on basically everything the publisher asked for. So I see. Um, Take out the Coca Cola. Yeah. So they one of the things I noticed was they removed Coca Cola and replaced it with Yummy Yummy Cola, hmm. which uh, I guess is designed to avoid a lawsuit, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. A feud. <laughs> or maybe it struck a little too close to home. I see. Yes. What other kinds of changes did you notice? Just minor, mm. minor uh, sentences. Um, uh, you know, like uh, a, a character would say two or three sentences instead of just one. You know, that kind of thing. I noticed a few things. I, I only followed it for about ten minutes, um, but you know, maybe it's more like copy editing than yeah, more like copy editing, fleshing it out a little bit. You know, I couldn't tell you whether it made it better or worse. Um, you're, you're saying the 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 novel is actually. Longer or shorter? I would say longer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because the ending, Eric, you were mentioning something about the ending of the original serialization being different. But not the very last words, apparently. But ah. yes, there's, 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 a, there's an extra chapter, but the very last words uh, seem to be the same. Uh, that is, it wouldn't take that long, which I find an enigmatic. Actually, I find it laughable. Um, but we talk about that now or later as you choose. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we'll go for it now. Why not? Well, for those people who haven't read the, the novel, uh, what we have here is um, a, a protagonist, Mitch Courtney, who is the, an advertising executive in a world, a future, an overcrowded future world, in which the economic forces run everything. Uh, explicitly, including the government. Um, and I call it a compocalypse. Commercial apocalypse. <laughs> I, call, I call it 20, 2011. <laughs> Today. Yes. Well, we're not quite as no. um, patent a, about it. But yes. And uh, in that world, there is a vertical integration of industries where the top of every one of these integrated uh, uh, commercial behemoths is an advertising agency. Uh, and Mitch becomes ultimately radicalized by the consies, obviously a sound association with commies, but it comes from conservationists who see that over-exploitation of resources as leading the world uh, into a terrible situation. And his wife, Dr. Kathy Nevins, 
in fact is a Kanzi. Uh, so naturally, they're going to have problems. But when he gets radicalized, um, he eventually uh, is reunited with her, which is a darn good thing because, boy, she really loves him um, inescapably. It's one of those uh, Tristan and Isolde kind of feelings that she has. And the last scene in the novel, as published, has them in a rocket ship about to take off for reasons I'll let one of you guys uh, talk about. And they're strapping in. She, they need to explain stuff, and she needs to explain stuff to him. And she can't because um, they're taking off too soon. And she says, uh, it goes, the 60-second beeper went off. Hammocks, said Kathy, and the tears in her eyes flooded out. I put my arm around her. This is a stinking, undignified business, she said. I have exactly one minute to kiss and make up, let you get over your question and answer period, intimate that I have a private cabin and there's two hammocks in it, and get us both fastened in. I straightened up fast. A minute is a long time, dear, I told her. It didn't take that long. <laughs> is, is this premature launch? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, what didn't take that long? Uh, well, uh, I, I, the kissing and making up, I guess. Uh, oh, is that it? He, he's, he's been down in Costa Rica for a long time. Give the guy a break. <laughs> well, okay. Let us assume that that's, in fact, uh, the, the result of his uh, having lived underneath Chicken Little all that time. Um <laughs> You still have to wonder why that would be thought of as a happy ending. <laughs> uh, speaking of sound association, um, I, I found the, the main, uh, his boss uh, at Fowler Shocken and Shows Associates, is that what it was called? Um, I thought his name was, was funny after, after thinking about it. Fowler Shocken. Right? Well, we have some very shocking foul in this story. <laughs> with chicken little, chicken little. Um, you think that was like an an accident? Not at all. Uh, I think that the foul part you've picked that up exactly right, and I think that it's worth noticing that this book is produced by two men living in New York City, in what at that time, 1952 is understood by the fans and the writers as what's called the science fiction ghetto. And in that science fiction ghetto, um, we have a very, very high fraction of Jews, including Horace Gold, who's the editor of the magazine in which this, mag- in which this book appears. Um, and in that environment, there is a pioneering publishing firm which has exclusive rights to certain very important Jewish writers, including Kafka. And that publishing house is Shocken. Oh, hmm. interesting. Uh, so Philip I cannot Klass help but... apparently uh, contributed to the book a bit. Excuse me? Uh, Philip Klass, you know, uh, William Ten. Yes. He, uh, apparently he contributed some ideas to the plot, according to the Wikipedia entry here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, is, is Frederick... I don't think Frederick Pohl's Jewish, is he? Uh, not to the best of my knowledge. He and I are actually acquainted. I've got a lovely picture somewhere of me, Fred, and, and Ray Bradbury together. Hmm. Um, and no, Fred is not Jewish. But Fred, you will know, uh, if you look at his biography, has served as editor, 
agent and writer. That is, he's been in every aspect of the business. And yeah. so living in New York, performing those roles, he could not help but have uh, strong relations with a large cadre of Jewish contributors to the field, like Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. And he was also in advertising for a time, I read. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, there. If you go to the Wikipedia entry, there's a link to a study guide at the bottom. So I guess I cheated. And, <laughs> and there it says uh, he actually worked in advertising, kind of as research for the novel. But then uh, the first draft didn't work out, and he put it away. And then later on, he managed to finish it with his partner. Right. Uh, in fact, a lot of people say that uh, there is a special flavor about the, the five or six novels that, that Cyril Kornbluth and Fred Pohl did together that really is different from uh, Pohl's other work. Kornbluth died uh, young, if I recall correctly, shoveling snow by his home in Levittown. Um, just got a heart attack and killed over, is, is what I recollect. Um, and Pohl, of course, has gone on to have this extraordinary career. Um, but you look at, at some of his books, um, like Man Plus, and I think that's in many ways a brilliant book. But if you take a look at The Merchant's War, which is his solo sequel to The Space Merchants, um, it's really pretty weak. It's really well, pretty weak. Uh, what I've read of Paul, other than his collaborations, uh, uh, he seemed very obsessed with, uh, not psychology, but um, psychiatry. Uh, a lot of his characters seem to have, like, mental illness or um have had mental illness in their past um a couple a couple of more recent uh you know uh 1980s 1990s novels and i think his most famous one gateway is a, is about a guy who's who's being who's under psychotherapy by a computer yeah. uh, as well mm-hmm. as being a space exploration novel right right mm-hmm. i think one of the 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 great things about paul's writing is that he really is concerned with the human, the felt impact of all of these changes. Um, and, and lots of science fiction in that period was not. Uh, I think, I don't know, Jesse, you suggested earlier before we began taping that there are weaknesses uh, from your viewpoint in Space Merchants. I'm going to just take a guess and ask, do they come from the reliance on simple genre stereotypes like the way romance is handled in this book yeah i i know that uh some people have criticized it as being melodramatic um and i i I think i think there's there's um there's some sort of structural problems that it feels like in many places it's been well polished and in other like i mean the opening chapter is excellent um, one of the best opening chapters of a novel ever I, I've read. I'm very, very impressed by the opening chapter. Uh, but it soon gets sort of... Uh, until until he gets, the character gets kidnapped or body-swapped or whatever, whatever it is that happens to him, if, if there's a word for it, I'm sure there's a word. He, he has his identity stolen, perhaps, or it's stolen and replaced. Um, until that happens, uh, the plot seems to be sort of just um meandering and then and then suddenly it comes into clarity and i think it is much improved he took a hero's journey to find knowledge sure i thought you would say that <laughs> <laughs> no like uh the odyssey 
Uh, yeah, I guess he does sort of return like the in the Odyssey. Well, in, indeed, it even includes the classic catabasis of going underground and coming up again. That's true. Yeah, I, I want to talk about Chicken Little because I think we got onto I, I got onto this book after we talked about it on the food show. Is that one? We talked about food as a topic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And uh, you mentioned Chicken Little, and I, I remember one of my uncles, who's a big science fiction fan, talking about Chicken Little, and I, I was like, what, is the sky falling? <laughs> is that the idea? <laughs> um, well, the Chicken Little is the, is the sky, right? <laughs> At one point in the story. Um, uh, what, what that whole thing made me think of was, I, I was thinking about, you know, you know like uh, Banana Republics, United Fruit Company, and the, the, the sort of the fruit wars of Central and South America and the Caribbean. And uh, was that sort of in the news at the, at the time, in the 1950s? I guess it must have oh, been. Oh, sure. Or it m- might have been about to be in the news with, um, uh, you know, Cuba and, and such. Well, the United States had Marines in some, you know, in Colombia, for instance. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but one of the things I love about this novel is the degree to which it is foresightful. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the analysis, or I shouldn't say the analysis, the the depiction of what it means to live in an overcrowded uh, world, which is resource poor and polluted because of what we've done. This this is 1952. This is 1952. This is when. You know, this is before Eisenhower has even said, and let's pave over America, right? Um, the, the sense here of the power of advertising to mold people and foster this kind of consumption, this is five years before Vance uh, Packard publishes The Hidden Persuaders. This is just amazingly um, thoughtful and incisive understanding of what the world was going to at a time when most people were just wildly enthusiastic about what the world was going to. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 um, it, it is immensely foresightful. And I, I, was, I kept finding scenes and, and little, little hints of, hints of um, what seemed to be foresight in it that I, I was, I just, oh, I got to share this on the podcast because it, 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 it is, uh, I, I think the plot is actually, it is good once you figure out what's good, what it, right. it what, once they figure out what they're actually doing with it, the plot is good, but I think it, it, it is special in, in its little turns of phrase in its, in its scenes. Um, and it's, uh, some of its imagery, but it is a little bit episodic. I, I, I remember, uh, in I think the Frederick Pohl, one of his uh, interviews with Alfred Bester on his blog, um, I guess Alfred Bester interviewing him, uh, he mentioned that they were writing it um, while it was being serialized. So <laughs> it's it's got a little bit of the um, you know the, we've got the character of the uh, the the tiny the tiny uh, Jack O'Shea, yeah, mm-hmm. the tiny spaceman, right? Who who's been to. Venus. Uh, I mean, that's that. That was something I thought of as a kid. And if it's expensive to get people up on rockets, why not just get really little people, <laughs> including maybe me? I'm a kid. I could go up there, right? Um, Clever. Very right, good. Right. Uh, it didn't work out, but um, to this day, I, I I think a lot of people don't know that 
pilots tend to be very small people because airplanes are small. <laughs> the cockpit saves gas, I guess. It, it well, and space and and weight and all that. Right. Stuff. Yeah. I was going to say as we go more and more into the future, with the population getting bigger and bigger, this book is only going to be more uh, relevant until we solve this problem. Yeah. With the resources running out. I, I'm I'm certainly willing to uh, acknowledge the the uh, kind of simplicity of the plot. I mean, it's not all that engaging as a plot, but I think what Tamahome just said about the picture of the world um, actually comes out brilliantly in, as you were saying, Jesse, the turns of phrase. Um, there's something that I call transformed language. Um, it's a feature of some science fiction. Um, so, for instance, in uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, which, as you know, is set on a world that is so frozen that the name of the world means winter in the local language, um, people say, the glaciers didn't freeze overnight. And obviously, to us readers, that's a transformation of Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm -hmm. Um and that transformation not only is a reminder that we're not in Kansas anymore, um, but it tells us how far away and in what direction we would find Kansas. <laughs> that is, Rome wasn't built in a day. It is set in a world in which humanity shapes the things of consequence by their own actions, whereas the glaciers didn't freeze overnight is a statement in a world in which humanity is subject to climate that it cannot control and it dominates human life. So transformation, as I say, simultaneously tells us we're not in Kansas and how far away and in what direction. This book is full of transformed language, mm -hmm. just full of it. So when, when we're told that Matt Runstead knew what side his, bud, his bread was oiled on, hmm. Mm -hmm. The change from butter to oil instantly lets us know the comparative poverty that's been generated by this overpopulation. When, when the boss himself says, when I, dry, when I go home, I pedal a Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, that change from drive to pedal, that transformation tells us not only we're not in Kansas, but how far away it is. And this book has one phrase like that after another. So you talk about the, the, the power of the advertising industry as the top of these vertically integrated combines. And we're told that a particular person came from a deeply moral, sales-fearing home. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's gorgeous. So, yeah, the, the plot may not be all that unusual and they may have written it episodically but sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph I think it offers one delight after another. It does. It does. Mm -hmm. um, we might be better off uh, with pedals on our cars. <laughs> well, <laughs> to keep us in shape. Got a point. It, it, it's true but if you think about what was going on at the time, you know, 1951, 1952, you've got everybody is, is, is buying cars. right? Everybody's building cars. Everybody is getting cars. They're moving out to the suburbs. It's, it's, uh, it, they're looking and saying, well, what's going to happen if, if this goes on a straight line into the future? 
Um, but they're also, you know, if we if we say sure, the United States, everybody in the, there's more, I think there's more cars in the United States now than there are people. Um, that that seems reasonable in in a certain way because you know everybody's got to replace their car every five years or so. <laughs> says the guy who has a 21 year old car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on the on the other hand, the rest of the world, you know, there isn't more cars on the planet. It, if everyone on the planet needs a car, then we are, you know, I guess it's what, like William Gibson says, um, the, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Right? Uh. They are looking at, uh, Kornbluth and Paul are, are looking at what's happening and saying, well, if we keep going this direction, where, where, where will we go? And I think th- that's uh, that's a lot of the power of the book. You're right. That I, I I think I even mentioned that that specific turn uh, transformed language you you mentioned uh, on the last podcast. Um, yeah. It, as saying this is this is something, <laughs> this is a book that's going to be special because just uh, because of just that sort of thing. Now, I looked up. I tried to figure out exactly what kind of government or uh, rule or system they've got and. I found a, a massive list on Wikipedia of all the li- uh, different or many different government forms or types. And the closest one I could find was something called corporatocracy. Um, but uh, the one difference, I think, uh, it, it says, somebody's got f- had fun here with the Wikipedia entry. says, Oliver Stone captured, quote, Wall Street, you know. Could say, could say runs the world. Wall Street, the pharmaceutical lobbies, the oil lobbies, they run our government. And I, I think he might be <laughs> more right than we know, uh, but that's not exactly what we have in this book. It's more like, um, uh, what's the street that the... the uh, Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue runs, runs the government in this world, right? They are the, the ultimate deciders. Well, one of the things that I like about this book, I'm picking up on your point, um, Jesse, is that it asks you to think about what that means. So, for instance, um, that the, the very shape of the government, um, we're told this, uh, our representative government now is perhaps more representative than it has ever been in history. It is not necessarily represented representative per capita, but it most surely is ad valorem. If you like philosophical problems, here's one for you. Should each human being's vote register alike, as the law books pretend, and as some say the founders of our nation desired, I love that as some say, because you look at the Constitution and clearly they didn't include women, they didn't include blacks, etc., or should a vote be weighed according to the wisdom, the power, and the influence, that is, the money of the voter? That is a philosophical problem for you, you understand, not for me. I am a pragmatist and a pragmatist, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it says that is a philosophical problem for you, it looks like the character is speaking to another character in the dialogue in the novel. But I think it's also the implied author speaking to the reader and saying, hey, now, wait a minute. Do we really want to have idiots have the same power as smart people? Do we really want people who don't care about 
a subject to have the chance to change it, its outcome as opposed to those who really are affected by it, etc. I think I think Cornbluth wrote that <laughs> that that line would be my guess. Why uh, is that? Well, based on based on the other uh, book we talked about briefly. Um, uh, I mean the marching morons. The marching morons, right? He's he is concerned with uh, uh, a lot of his stuff. Seems concerned with uh, dystopia, utopia, and and figuring out what what is the appropriate place of uh, uh, appropriate type of government. And certainly, you know, uh, a, a means test or a, a <laughs> literacy test. Those are the sorts of questions that uh, he seems more interested in. I think. Uh, the- I, you know, I, I don't know. You might be right. I, I do think, though, that, that it, the book raises this as a serious question. It makes it funny. And, of course, we who only have our meager salaries are not happy to think that Yummy Cola will be able, you know, or the representative from General Motors will be able to outweigh us. But on the other hand, um, I don't want to share the highway with somebody who can't read streets, who can't read traffic signs. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. right? And I'm really glad that there is a means test or a qualification exam um, for the guy who's, that small guy who's piloting the airplane that I'm in. <laughs> you know? Um, mm-hmm. He's making decisions to go up or down depending upon things that come along. And I don't want to just trust, you know, a committee Represent, you know, voted upon by the passengers. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and the you know the uh, average person, the um, consumer in this book, right, is yeah. conveyed as uh, pretty That's pretty dim. I love that. Yeah, very um, manipulated and um, <clears throat> easily manipulated. Um, you remember in when the Chicken Little, you know, they had a Chicken Little. Um, I don't know, popularity problem. <laughs> so the, yeah. the ad guy goes in there and says, well, this is what you do. You start this rumor that blah, blah, blah. And then after three days, this will happen. And then, um, then you say this, and then everybody's going to be happy again. And, um, you know, so the, the, the whole populace is conveyed as just easily manipulated. Well, I, I think there's, uh, there's a great podcast. I probably mentioned it before. It's called the age of persuasion. It's a CBC podcast about advertising and, I, I'm, I think I talked to Luke about it and saying, you know, it's it's this great podcast that's so slick and very interesting. But I don't, when I come away from it, I don't feel like I've I've learned a whole lot. Um, it's got great stories and it's very persuasive and it's so well put together. Uh, but I keep listening to it. Right? <laughs> it's about advertising. It's about a guy who does radio. It's, it's by a guy who does radio advertising, and it's basically about the history of of advertising. And what's interesting is that he, he did a whole show on, on the subject. He says, well, everybody, there's no person who sits down and says, um, oh, I'm, I'm totally swayed by advertising. <laughs> what they, they have is they say, oh, no, that advertising works on other people. It doesn't work on me. Right. Uh, and that's mentioned in this book. It's, it's, um, it's in it's or subconsciously in the, or something. Well, I think no, he actually says it, that in the book. Yeah, it, it it works. It it works whether you uh, see that it's working or not, right? So the fact that I know about all sorts of products that I have no interest in, you know, think about all the feminine hygiene products that we we know the names of. I I, I can't 
thankfully I can't recall any at the moment. But we're guys. We don't need feminine hygiene products, right? Why do we know these things? And what, why are uh, <clears throat> if if oh, here's one? It has wings. I think that was one of the <laughs> one of the <laughs> the lines. Well, why is that sticking in my head? Well, there's something to repetition. There's something to controlling um, controlling what enters someone's brain. And so, if everybody's drinking coffeeist, ah, why not? I'll give it a shot. <laughs> well, we've right? definitely we've definitely gotten to the point um, in or the United Starbucks. States where or Starbucks, um, that's campaigns, a example. yeah, but political campaigns are run by ad people. I mean, that's that's happening right now. I don't know if you saw some of John Huntsman's advertisements as he was leading up to his uh, announcement. Um, you know, they were slick ads. <laughs> And uh, what's that guy's name? Palenti? Palenti was doing yeah. uh, almost uh, movie screeners or movie trailers um, <laughs> leading up to his thing, you know, you know, big powerful music and, and all this thing, you know, in an attempt to influence, you know. But I honestly have no idea how well that stuff really works. It works really well. That's, <clears> the, that's the real answer is advertising. People say, oh, how, how can it be persuasive? It's persuasive on, the, on controlling the subject matter, right? So people, even if, even if you don't buy a particular product, right? Even <clears throat> if you don't buy a particular product, the fact that there is so much talk, it's sort of artificial chatter, right, that's going on, it acts as a, as a uh, chooser of the subject. So we can talk about, uh, not buying cars because it's bad for the environment or something like that. But there's so much advertising for cars that it becomes the accepted norm, even if, even if you are one of the people who says, no, I, I think cars are bad for the environment. You're, you're on the outside because the advertising is like a whole bunch of other people voting to talk about a subject. I think there are, I think there are two points here. One has to do with saturation. That's what I'm but, saying. Yeah. But one has to do with the nature of the message that is being used to saturate. And uh, the saturation issue is, is clearly crucial. Um, you're right. And, you know, coffee is blah, blah, blah. Um, but one of the things that I think is so wonderful about this book is that it doesn't just tell you that the messages are crafted in a certain way. It actually shows that to you. Mm -hmm. And it's believable. You know that we see Concy contact sheet number one um, in detail. You know, that, that document that a Concy would hand to someone hoping to recruit him to the cause. And it begins with this terrific emotional plea that's titled, A Life is in Your Hands. <laughs> you know, and so you read this thing and it's a, this really intelligent statement about how you have to make a you who have received this document need to make a moral choice and it seems pretty darn persuasive and then like eight pages later we get the rewrite of it can you qualify for a top level promotion <laughs> you and only you can answer these important questions and then we get the second version of the Concy contact sheet at what we find is the concies who have seen how Mitch has rewritten the contact sheet say, wow, this is great. We could really use you. Mm -hmm. Because they recognize that an appeal to reason, as we're told explicitly in this novel, advertising gave that up centuries ago. 
Reason is not, after all, what gets most people to buy most things. No. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually shown this in this novel. The, the, the language that looks good is then topped by language that looks even better. You've got to be a pretty good writer or a pair of writers to do that. It's true. In fact, uh, when, when you think, do, this is a question a lot of people ask, does advertising work? Look at, look at the animals that are capable of understanding what, uh, recognizing what advertising is, and then look at the animals that don't, and ask which ones buy things, right? So dogs love dog food, but they never buy it. <laughs> because they, they don't understand that it's being advertised. They, they're not capable of understanding the language. However, humans who don't eat dog food, they do tend to buy it. Actually, and they buy humans, a lot of it. Humans do eat dog food. <laughs> <laughs> About 20%. I don't know what it is now, but when I was in graduate school in the late 60s, I read at that point 20% of the dog food in the United States was wow. in fact consumed by human beings. And it's in part because um, it's cheaper than human meat tinned, um, and it's cheaper because the requirements for the cuts are lower. But it's cheaper it's salty. than human meat. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's soiling so meat. Right? <laughs> Absolutely you know, cheaper. One of the things that I am a little disappointed about in this book, speaking as a vegetarian who uh, consumes an awful lot of soy products, it does turn out that soya burger is yeah. coined in this book, but. I mean, I, I guess I eat chicken little pretty much three or four times a week. <laughs> and what, what uh, Poland Cornbluth did not foresee, or actually, they didn't even have to foresee it. If they'd known more about Asian cuisine, they could have realized it doesn't have to be bland. You can actually make it be really delicious stuff. And you don't have to just make it into fake steak. It can be delicious stuff of its own sort. So, you know, sorry about that, Fred. So, yeah, uh, Chlorella was the name of the company, right? Right. Uh, or was, that, was that owned by Schocken? Or was that a, just a... Um, I think it was owned by Paolo Schocken, or it was in the same chain of spherical marketing or whatever it is. Uh, right. but, but Chlorella is, um, is, a, is an algae, right? The actual object. The original right. name comes from the algae. So uh, Ch Chicken Little isn't really chicken, is it? Oh no no no! It's it's more like Soylent Red or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just a, a a cell culture that keeps getting it grows indefinitely. It's just this huge mass. Uh, the way I picture it is, uh, oh, Saitan. I don't know if you've ever made Saitan, but I've had that. Yeah, good. So if you if you make it, it's this gloppy, gloopy. I mean. I, gloopy stuff. I was uh, in Jamaica one time and went into a restaurant and wanted jerk something, but you know, I, as a vegetarian, I wasn't going to have jerk goat, so I mentioned, asked this to the waiter, could they do something for me? And the, the waiter came out uh, back from the kitchen and said, the, the chef would like to try, if you are willing, <laughs> to make you jerk chunk. <laughs> I said, chunk? <laughs> chunk of and the waiter said, Yes, the, the chef bought this white chunk, and it's completely <laughs> vegetarian, and he thinks he can do it. And it turned out later it was absolutely delicious, and later the, the chef came out to talk to me about it. It turned out that he had gotten seitan, but you know, this was some little out-of-the-way place in, uh, I think, uh, 
Tres Rios, um, uh, Three Rivers, uh, um, and the chef couldn't read. He just saw what saw the stuff in a store and thought he might experiment with it. So to him, it was just chunk. And ever since I've had jerk chunk, I think that's chicken little. <laughs> so oh, what is what is seitan? Uh, it's wheat uh, gluten. Ah, it's like the protein part of wheat. I see. Yeah, that does sound sort of. Chlor- I've had it at vegetarian restaurants in place of chicken. <laughs> it tastes like gluten. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he made it with lots of spices and oils. It, it tasted fine. He used right, and and yeah, the guy used regular jerk sauce, jerk seasonings, and it came out to be yummy. In fact, it was as good as regular, you know, jerk goat, which I had had earlier in my life. Uh, so, uh, do you, if you guys chicken remember, little, chicken little could be better, is what I'm saying. But <laughs> Poland Kornbluth want to make it seem bland, tasteless, um, prefabricated. It has no beginning. It has no end. It just grows indefinitely, and you slice pieces off it. Um, you flinch them off the sides. Uh, when you see this being done in the novel, what comes to my mind, at least, is the 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 demolishing of the whales, the flinching of the whales in Moby Dick. And it just seems as if it's nothing but an endless depredation of nature. It's, uh, it, and so because it has no beginning or end, it no longer seems natural. It's as, it's as great a violation as the one we see in Moby Dick, but it has no end. It just goes on indefinitely because it has been industrialized and corporatized. It seems to me that in that sense, the sky has fallen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, scum skimming wasn't hard to learn. You got up at dawn, you gulped <laughs> a breakfast sliced not long ago from Chicken Little, and washed it down with coffeeist. Yep. yep. Actually, there there is a nice passage in there about how how the the drinking the coffeeist requires that you have a smoke, and then you have a smoke, and that makes you hungry for the the chips, and then the chips make you hu- thirsty for the for the drink, and then the drink makes you want to have a cigarette, right? There's this cycle of chain of of um, of consumptive behavior that's <laughs> all designed to maximize the profits for the company. Exactly. Well, well, soda has uh, salt and caffeine. Those those things both make you thirsty. Right. For more soda. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you guys in the states, uh, apparently, uh, Mountain Dew has caffeine. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. It's in interesting. Fact, it's, high, it's got higher caffeine than the other ones. You know, caffeine is is not a a strong addictive, right? But apparent uh, they don't put it in there for no reason. Right. Caffeine is in, addictive. It it is addictive, but not it's not. Uh, it's also a diuretic. Addictive. Right. It's not as addictive as other. Uh, <laughs> it's not as addictive as nicotine, but yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I know but there people... are withdrawal symptoms and such, right? Exactly. Um, so we don't have, well, our, 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 our Mountain Dew doesn't have caffeine in it for some reason. No really? Yeah. When, so you uh, have Mountain Dew don't. Is there a law against that in Canada? <laughs> yeah, I think there is actually. Uh, uh, the only, the only um, beverages with caffeine are colas. Do you have um, energy drinks Natural there? Root. Energy drinks are, are like super popular down here right now. I've never had one, yeah. but I'm afraid are, I'd just have a heart attack. Jolts. No, they're they're called like Monster and um, Red Bull, uh, Nos, Red Bull, yeah, right. yeah, all those. They are here. Isn't Jolt one of them? There's Jolt, a commercial Jolt, on TV nowadays called uh, Five Second or Five 
Five Hour Energy. It's this little vial that you drink. You get them at the convenience Vial's stores. Good word for oh. it. Yeah. That's not just vitamins. It's a little vial, it's a little tiny thing. You just gulp it down. You're supposed to be awake for five hours. It's very vile. Is that I thought that was just vitamins. I didn't know it was. I don't know. I don't know. It's just. Oh. I thought it was a stimulant. I would assume it would be caffeine and things. Um, but uh, it, it, I could be wrong on that. Next, next I'll come out with one that uh, reverses the effects of the five-hour energy, so you can make That's it right. a three-hour energy, and uh, go to sleep in three hours. <laughs> yeah, then you need, yeah you need a sleeping pill. You need it on and off. Yeah, in uh, in uh, one of is it Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep? The the scene starts in the bedroom of of a husband and wife, and and uh, they have a little device beside their bed that's called a mood organ that <laughs> puts Actually, them in. It's it, it's it's called a Penfield. Uh, Penfield mood mood organ. Right, and it's named after that Canadian neuroscientist. Right, hmm. um, and uh, the the wife is in the mood to have an argument, and the husband isn't, uh, so she she gives herself the 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 dose that causes her to be argumentative, and and he wants to have a different emotion. Um, I, I think, forgive me, Jesse. I think you may have this wrong. If you're talking about the opening scene, isn't it? It opens up with with um, Rick Deckard waking up um, and then he turns goes and looks at his wife Aran in the next bed and she doesn't want to get up she's kind of grumpy and right. he reaches to, to change the dial and she says don't you dare put your hands on my you know and we're thinking you know but it's then she says mood organ mm-hmm. um, and that's what she know, calls it exactly um <laughs> It's it's a it's a good opening scene, but I don't think that she sets her mood organ to be argumentative. I think she wakes <laughs> up argumentative and won't let him change the setting. You you might be right, but uh, the the point the point of um of of uh, a lot of this is we uh, people like to be able to uh, control their moods. Um, if you get me quite late at night, I can be grumpy, right? <laughs> um, and I I know that I'm grumpy because I hear what I'm saying. I say, God, that sounded really grumpy. (laughs) I don't want to be grumpy. I just am. You play back the recording and it's grumpy. Well, we're recording in the morning, so I'm good. (laughs) I've got got my coffee right now. Well, that's got to tell you, that's sort of one of the reasons I gave up caffeine. Uh, It made you grumpy? Um, I found that long around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'd start every day with two big mugs, like 16-ounce mugs of really strong tea. And around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, whoever was with me was a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't matter who they were. Exactly, or what they had done. Uh, so I had other reasons for uh, giving up caffeine, but I found that, that that all went away. And so when those other reasons disappeared, I never went back to caffeine, except, of course, for chocolate, because you can't be, you know, fanatical. But with the exception of chocolate, I don't have any caffeine. And I got to tell you, a Hershey bar really makes my hair stand on end these days. <laughs> you really can feel how powerful a drug caffeine is if you don't have it in your system all the time. It's true. You know what? I have unsweetened chocolate. I just let it melt in my mouth and it tastes like black coffee. And that's huh. good enough for me. Hmm. I just get what the basic baker's unsweetened chocolate. I'll have to try that. Then you get rid of the sugar. I'd like to see. I'd like to see what the original chocolate, you know, the 
the uh, original bean, chocolate right? drink was. Oh. Uh, yeah, it comes from a bean. But you can you can find it in Mexico. Yeah, I didn't find it when I was there, but I would have. Did you have? Did you have mollo con pole? No. Uh, pollo. No. Well, the the traditional mole sauce that they serve on roast chicken in Mexico is an unsweetened chocolate sauce. Uh, so that's uh, like what they're drinking all what uh, Montezuma was drinking all day long. Yep. Hmm. Sounds good. Got to try it. <laughs> I, I was going to ask: Do you guys think, uh, in the age of the internet, does advertising have less of a power over us because we can discuss it with each other and the <laughs> channels of media or are more varied? It's not as centralized. Like maybe if the internet was there back in the time of this book. The I don't control know. couldn't happen as much. I always wonder, you know, with all the spam emails and things, surely some people are buying that stuff, right. no? Yes. I mean, yes. yeah, so I don't know. They're, they're able to reach more people, and then, um, you know, a small percentage of responders is actually could be a pretty big number. You have to remember that advertising doesn't require, it doesn't have to work on everybody. It only has to work on some people. And and yet, because it it does work on everybody, it controls the 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 subject, right? So, if we think of spam, I I can think of a couple of things. I think of drugs. Uh, well, actually, mostly I think of drugs. Um, but uh, you know, the the standard one is um, penis enhancement or something like that. Uh, don't I don't feel a special need to get my penis enhanced in any way. However, um, this must be something that sells. So, somebody out there is is enjoying it, <laughs> but they're also, but they're but but we are uh, we're getting the externalities from all of that, right? We're getting the 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 spillage of of advertising, the spillage from penis enhancement. Good, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I watch like David Levin at night, all the ads are like Viagra. That's all I see. <laughs> Speaking of the la- the language of advertising, I've got a report years ago. Um, I had occasion to try to buy a cross section of diverse sorts of pornography. I was trying to see what genres it fell into, mm-hmm. and so I wound up having just one or two version examples of an illustrated novel, a collection of short stories, a men's magazine, a gay magazine, you know, a bunch of things. And at the back of the magazines. I found ads, and the ads, the one that sticks in my mind most is genuine, spurious placebo. <laughs> mm. And I'm thinking... It's, co- it's coded language for something. <laughs> well, no. I mean, the thing transformed is, language. The, the guy who reads this is supposed to think, yeah, I'm going to spewer all over her. <laughs> you know? I mean, genuine, spurious placebo. And it's the sound of the words, obviously, that the advertiser is trying to use. It's not the content of the words. They're trying to create a feeling. And that does happen now. I mean, you know, you were saying, Scott, you only have a small percentage. And you said the same thing, Jesse. It doesn't have to work for everyone. Well, in fact, I mean, you turn on TV, at least in this country, and you see ads for Boeing, Forever New Frontiers. And I'm thinking, when I'm in the mood for a jet aircraft, I'm running right out to get, you know, they're not advertising to me so that I will buy. They're advertising so that they can occupy a particular position in our culture at large. 
right. so that the things that they do will be received properly. So when Dubai Ports wants to take over the management of certain American ports, they get turned away through the political process, which is not representative, right? It does represent people ad valorem rather than ad, than per capita. So when you're they saying valorem, turned- that, uh, not everybody will know that's, that means uh, uh, regarding how, how much tax you pay or something like that, well, right? Well, regarding worth. Yeah, right? Okay. Right, according to worth, ad valorem. Yeah. Uh, but that was the line, that, that was the phrase that was used in the space merchants, right? Um, and they get turned away. Dubai Ports gets turned away by our elected representatives who are responding not to our having elected them, but to the people who influence them. But the people who influence them have created an environment in which the people who actually elected them at the ballot box share certain values, and those values are created by the general cultural conversation, much of which comes from advertising, which isn't actually aimed at getting me to go out and buy a hamburger. It's may, aimed at making me feel really good about Boeing. You know, Cisco, Cisco, the human network. I'm going to go right out now and set up my own internet. Yeah. No! trying to change your, uh, I guess, your mental space so that when you make a future decision, somehow you'll rely on that and pick them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I think, to go back to your question, Tomahome, about the age of the Internet, I think that, in fact, advertising is at least as effective as it has ever been because it is more, there's much greater penetration. And better targeted, right? Now, I don't get feminine hygiene ads on Google, right? I get... Uh, local ads for businesses I might actually shop at. Exactly. Yeah, now, they can read all your email. And- there was a film not long ago. Um, could it have been iRobot, maybe, where he was walking down a corridor and because... Oh, the, minority Report? That, could it, was it Minority Report where the ads were specifically, as he right, walked were- by, because the computer knew who he was... Sent yeah, him the exact ad. It's right. like, hello, Bob. You know, you should try this cheeseburger mm-hmm. or something like that. Right. Yeah, and so we are having a, a little bit of that on the internet now. Yeah, I think the Minority Report is so uh, so good at predicting what's uh, happening. I always refer back to that movie. Hmm. The I, I think one day we'll have those controlled cars and the uh, the way we move pictures around, the way Tom Cruise did. Hmm. <laughs> well, we, we. I mean, you say one day, but um, you know, it's just you get not evenly distributed yet. We have the gesture recognition and all that stuff, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you, you get off the airplane. You know, I, I fly from here, you know, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, get onto the plane in Detroit and get off the plane in California. And I open my cell phone in order to call the person who's supposed to pick me up, let them know that I'm there. And the right time shows, the local time shows. And when I use one of the apps, the free apps that I have on my cell phone, guess what? The advertising that supports those free apps are to local establishments. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it doesn't exactly know me, although it could because each cell phone has a unique number in its SIM card. But whether yeah. or not they could know me, they know where I am. They know what time it really is. And they kind of still know the things that might interest me. Yeah, it seems such a now. tiny step from that to uh, giving you um, hotel options the moment you open up your phone because it knows that you just landed. It, you know? Indeed. And in fact, if I, if I tap on my Yelp app in my phone, it does give me 
hotel options. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to you know that Boeing ad on television, right? Um, p- part of the spillage of those ads is is it's not actually intended to convince you to buy your you know a, a, a 747 as opposed to um, you know an Airbus. What it's designed to do is flex the muscle, right? It's it's saying we are a big corporation, a huge important corporations. We are powerful and. We need to have our voice heard as a citizen in, in the marketplace, right? Not a c- citizen of, of the United States, but a citizen of the global marketplace. And w- one of the interesting things that's sort of less, less uh, talked about on the, uh, all the WikiLeaks things is that the, the government of the United States uh, uh, diplomats sent to other countries, you know, they're, they're given briefs, what they're going to talk about. And a lot of it is, you know, Selling, Boeing <laughs> sells to countries around the world. Any airline has to choose: are they going to go Airbus? Are they going to go Boeing? Airbus is Europe. Uh, Boeing is the United States. Or Bombardier. Let's give or, candidates uh, too. <laughs> yes, but w- w- we only sell to the the you know Boeing is for the masses. The bomb- uh, Bombardier is for um, is for the the guys who own the who own Boeing. Right? Oh no, no, Bombardier has. The, is now the world's biggest seller of regional jets. Yes, regional uh, and, and corporate, right? Well, um, the small corporate, jets. yes, but 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 they are really commercial. They're not just privately owned. They they really are out there. No, I, I agree. I agree. But um, the, uh, hmm. the the point is, is the diplomats are selling. They're, they're going there saying, you know, we've got this uh, wonderful jet. You should really look at. Uh, it, it is uh, that's that's the. The corp, you know, the corporation advertising on television is sending a message to the representatives, saying, "This is your focus, right? This is what you should be talking about." Because, Indeed. because it's not, it's not that I need to, you know, you need to know that. It's that the representatives need to know that. We we can flex this muscle. We can afford to put an ad on television that goes out to hundreds of thousands of people that have no ability to buy our product, so that you can sell our product. I, I think you're right, but I think that there really is even a wider market. I mean, I mean if, if I were, if I ran the U.S. government, um, I would want to figure out ways to increase employment, especially these mm-hmm. days. And it really doesn't seem to me cost-effective to ask our ambassador to Spain to try to get some Spanish company to hire one American. But if I can get the Spanish ambassador our ambassador to Spain to get the, to get, uh, the Spanish airline to buy 10 Boeing aircraft, we can put 10,000 Americans to work. And so the question becomes, for the wider conversation among Americans, why should Boeing be particularly advantaged in getting that, that commerce as opposed to, say, Hollywood, which in fact is as large an exporter as the armaments industry. And the answer is, well, you know, we kind of like Boeing. It's forever new frontiers. So our, our representatives don't have to worry about defending themselves against supporting these activities of the U.S. government. It's not just, in other words, the agents of the government who are being targeted here. It is the wider population. 
And you see that in in this novel, right? There's there's the 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 two big corporations are having a war as to who's yes. going to be who's going to control the uh, the most number of lobbyists to control. <laughs> I liked how the president was really not that. He's not really an important <laughs> figure in the in the novel, right? But you can't blame him because he just inherited the position. He That's was born right. into it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Romans had this had this thing where. You know, he came from an old family. His <laughs> right. his his great grandfather had been proconsul, right? Um, <laughs> right. And well, we we do tend to have this. I mean, the Kennedys uh, are one of those old families, right? The uh, the Bushes are one of the more recent ones. Um, it's uh, there's something there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's advertising, right? The Kennedy name. Right, they 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 become a brand. I I think there was a there was a story not that long ago to, about a representative uh, or a, uh, somebody running uh, and and getting tons of votes even though they weren't related to the other Kennedys because they had the Kennedy brand. Right, they, exactly. their name had. I think one of the guys even had changed his name to Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> so so this book is this book is well titled either as the Gravy Planet, you know, we're living off gravy. Um, or the space merchants. I mean, they are trying to sell. Um, it, it, the thematic heart of the book is persuasion and whether it can be trusted or not. Whose message should we listen to? I love that line about Tildy Mathis, the, the copywriter. You know, if Shakespeare were alive today, he'd be a copywriter. And if you tell her she's a poet, she would say, oh, no, no, no. But look at how great she is at crafting language. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question for you guys. Um, we were talking about earlier, much earlier, um, some of the weaknesses of the novel coming from it being too uh, simply in the version of uh, picking up on genre conventions. So, uh, penis enhancement aside, what do you think about love in this novel? Hmm. What do you think about Kathy's love, Mitch's actually, response? It, it kind of bothered me that uh, like he actually slaps her in one scene. And then at the end, she just kind of declares her love for him. It just seems totally unrealistic. But I guess in movies back then, that kind of thing was accepted. Yeah, and then there's um, Hester as well. Hester. Yeah, did she really kill herself? Kind of made the ultimate they, sacrifice there. I, you know, that seemed that very odd to me. Time. You know, I, I can't help but wonder. You know, Hetty. Um, Hetty Lamar was German by birth. Um, by 1951-52, all of America is very aware of some of the uh, sadistic activities, not mere genocide, but sadistic genocide performed by the Nazis. She's an important character, as you probably know, Hedy Lamar, because she invents and patents <coughs> a, a device for code switching so that uh, that gets used during World War II by the Americans in order to keep from having their secure communications um, violated by the Nazis. So she's kind of an interesting figure. Mm-hmm. So here we've got Hetty. I mean, where do you get that name from? I don't know. You've got Hetty and Hester. You, I just hmm. wonder, is there some kind of funhouse <clears throat> mirror going on here? We're talking about the extraordinary sadistic love. I mean, Hetty keeps saying she loves him, mm-hmm. bitch, you know, and she's going to drive that needle up his jaw. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and nice. Hester. 
you know, and the, I mean, I know about you guys, but the only Hester that I know, um, that, you know, that comes right to my mind is Hester Prynne, hmm. who, who loves Dimsdale and never gives him away for his entire life. She keeps his secret and is quiet about her love in the Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't help but wonder if these guys, I mean, Poland Cornbluth, are trying to um, suck in by allusion much deeper understandings of the complexity of love than they actually are able to, to work out in a comparatively simple genre kind of stereotype plot. I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, I haven't read the Scarlet Letter, so that that's a new one to me. But that makes sense. That, yeah, that yeah, makes that's a lot of that's sense interesting. Based I on need, what I know I about it, I need to make more the more of those kinds of connections because that opens up a little bit. You know, you're, yeah, hmm, yeah, very interesting. Those are those. Yeah, those are interesting matches. Um, uh, I th- I think I think for the most part, this is this is a pretty impressive novel. What what, what is also impressive is that. Uh, the issues before uh, it appeared in Galaxy, the previous serialization was one, uh, maybe the best science fiction novel that I've ever read. That's uh, The Demolished Man by oh. Alfred Bester. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm greatly impressed by that novel, but not, not so much for its, uh, its science fiction-iness but more for the impressive characterization. And that's not something I normally am interested in in science fiction. I'm not much about characters. I'm more about ideas and, and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, they're, they're, they feel kind of similar to me in that they are very uh, up-to-date. The Demolished Man is uh, about, a, about a guy who runs a giant corporation as well, right? The... Mm-hmm. Main difference being that uh, the, he's the head. I mean, they could almost be in the same universe, really. Those the two stories, but the main difference is there's a, a, a psychic or um, tele, telepathic uh, element. Police force. Yeah. yeah, and so the plot is is quite different, but the feel and the up to dateness. Um, they don't feel uh, these two novels don't feel like they've aged very much. You know. You were mentioning before, Jesse, I agree with you uh, um, about their continuing vitality. You mentioned before that Fred Pohl's work seems to you to be very concerned with psychiatry. Absolutely. And that is also a characteristic of Alfred Bester. His two best known works are The Demolished Man and The Star is My Destination. Um, the, The one that you bring up, The Demolished Man, is about whether or not one can have enough control over one's own thoughts. That is, if one can restrain not just the ideas, but the, the emotions enough so that you are not detected by others. And the demolished man begins with somebody being so angry that his very emotions change the way the entire physical world responds to him. And he learns to jaunt, you know, sort of mm-hmm. squirt himself through uh, that's, space. Yeah, the uh, star's my destination. Yeah. Exactly. So um, the, actually, those are his two best books, and again, it's it's what you're saying about Paul. Uh, what's interesting, though, is I just realized is that remember the way he solves that the the problem of people people getting into his thoughts and knowing what he's planning. He mm-hmm. he has the copywriters write up the most addictive jingle they can think of. Right? Mm-hmm. A tensor said the tensor. <laughs> 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 uh, 
comprehension has begun, right? So that he can say this rhyme over and over again. Uh, I think in in Babylon 5, they changed it uh, to uh, Mary had a little lamb, her fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, her lamb was sure uh, sure to go. Um, uh, They didn't didn't copy the exact jingle, but that, that, uh, what is it called, an earworm, something that gets in your head, and you can't control its... Uh, ability to control you. He right. uses that. He has them construct one so that he can use it to defend himself. It, 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 Friday, it is about so- Friday. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everybody. Uh, you know, it, it, there is something uh, that's, uh, that song is a train wreck that is un. you can't stop looking at it, right? Yeah. Uh, have you seen this video? They took it off for some reason. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I've seen it. You don't. Times. <laughs> they took it, it down. Uh, it's 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 terrible, and yet you can't stop looking at it, right? I'm I'm. It's I'm, got the numbers, so it's, it's got something that people are attracted by. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and and it is this um, insidiousness, right? The ability to get in places that uh, it sh- it should have no should have no ability to get in but it, it it can get in there and and sort of set the set the um the topic of conversation arthur clark has a make story I, I... good sorry i said make it stop <laughs> <laughs> clark has a story I, I don't recall the name of it i have the recollection but i'm not willing to to assert this that it's part of tales of the white from the white heart mm-hmm. um in which there is a scientist. It, 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 it's set after the fact. Um, this scientist is discovered dead in his laboratory uh, by a janitor. And it turns out that what the scientist has done is found these songs that stick in people's heads, and he's analyzed them in order to find the essence of head sticking in this. <laughs> right? And he has wound up constructing the song that is the most inescapable, that will stay in your head no matter what you want to do forever. It will just colonize your brain. Um, And it's playing in the lab when the janitor walks in. Oh, no. The the guy is dead. But fortunately, the janitor is tone deaf. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's not affected by the song. He goes over, sees that things are awry, and shuts off the equipment and reports the death. And people are able to reconstruct what happened. Um, your, your mind does get taken over. But he's alone. Let me, can I go back to the book for a sec here? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. Another one of the, the kind of lines that I think makes me think, and I believe that the authors want to make us think, um, Mitch discovers himself in, shockingly enough, a library. And he says, I could not relax in the presence of so many books without a word of advertising in any of them. <laughs> I am not a prude about solitary pleasures when they serve a useful purpose, but my tolerance has limits. And it seemed to me there were a couple of questions there that I infer, and I'm hoping the authors wanted us to have, that I think are maybe useful for us as a group. I mean, we all like to read a lot. So one question is, is there a downside to this solitary pleasure? The second question is, 
here we are talking about a book collectively. Is it fair to think of books simply as solitary pleasures? Mm. I guess it's a delayed social pleasure. <laughs> if you can find well, someone else who's read it. Well, I think that the, when the author was writing it, they tend to enjoy it. They, they are writing it for themselves. They, they are enjoying it. And then you are... Uh, that your your participation in, in it is so it is uh, maybe it's a solitary pleasure that is serial right you pass the book on to someone else and then you talk about it i think uh, that's one of the things i like about a, a podcast like science fiction book review podcast or reading reviews is you say oh this is somebody who who had a similar experience to me and we can make a comparison you can say that the reader is socializing with the author the, just the reader is not doing any of the talking. Well, a long, long time ago, I ran across, across a quote, and I have no idea who said it, but he said, you haven't read a book until you've talked about it. And um, since... What a good line. Yeah, since starting this podcast, um, I can, you know, every single book that we've sat down this way and talked about, there is a depth and a dimension to that particular book that I, I don't experience with anything that I've just read on my own and then not discussed with someone um so uh, it certainly takes on more of a, a vitality in the talking about it i have a, a friend who uh writes a, a a one paragraph or one page ish kind of uh sense of what he thinks is important about each book that he reads mm-hmm. and collects them at the end of each year, he sends it out as a PDF to any friends of his who have said that they're interested in receiving it. And I really do believe that this man makes of his reading a less solitary pleasure because part of what he's doing as he's reading it is thinking of how he can communicate his response to it both to himself and to others. Mm. I wonder to what extent People, I'm going to use stereotypes now, but if I think of a housebound young mother reading six Harlequin romances a month by subscription and just using that as an escape in the bathroom from the demands around her and the house, as opposed to, say, us who read a book and then get together to discuss it, it seems to me maybe those are two very different kinds of thing. They both mm-hmm. may be codices, you know, physically the same object, but they may be quite different as phenomena in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and science now, fiction is especially especially uh, good discussion material because of everything that it contains. Um, well, this this book that we're talking about, Scott, I mean, it's a satire. Mm-hmm. I mean, and what we've all been saying is it's still relevant to the world we live in today. That is not just an, as an example of satire, um, but as a pointed specific satire against issues we, constant, we currently face. So maybe, you know, that talk there about solitary pleasure was ironic. Maybe... What the authors are trying to say is, yes, as you say, Scott, it's full of this stuff, and we're supposed to do something about it. Not just have the fun of reading the satire, 
now do something about it. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. you want this hope for. Yeah. I'm I'm still thinking about that 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 story the uh, the White Heart story and made me think of <laughs> made me think of um, the Monty Python the funniest joke in the world you know that oh. that oh, joke that. warfare bit where <laughs> they the the they're working on the on the funniest jokes so that they can use that as a weapon and it'll it'll kill you. And uh, then they they have the soldiers walking into the field, uh, translating, you know, the, reading reading the joke aloud without knowing what it means. And the Germans are saying, "No, that's not funny." And then they start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> they laugh so hard they fall down dead. <laughs> and what was that joke, Jesse? Ben, you stop. Oh, that's hilarious. Don't tell the Joker I'll never be able to edit the podcast. Right. That's right. <laughs> Scott was found at his desk editing. <laughs> Do you have a, a humorless janitor in your life, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to find one. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> um, speaking of advertising in books, there's already a Kindle that comes with ads in it, and it makes the Kindle cheaper. Oh, yeah, so, I saw that. No, that was an interesting way to do that, but... Yep. I'd prefer I don't know not. how expensive it is. <laughs> it's, it's cheaper to buy. Yeah. So that's the trade-off. If, yeah. it's, if it's in the same spot on, on every page, you could just tape a little piece of paper over it. <laughs> I, I think it just might be on the, the main screen, and then you don't see it when you're reading. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not too bad. Paper? What's paper? <laughs> <laughs> What's this thing you call paper? <laughs> Well, I, I I was looking through these old books I've got, uh, you know, and one of the interesting thing that appears in them and some of the some of the magazines like Galaxy as well, um, is that halfway through there's a a piece of paper sticking out that is like a a tearaway, you know, advertising for cigarettes or something like in the middle of a of a perfectly normal paperback novel, <laughs> it's just a giant piece of advertising. This is something we've we've really gotten away from in 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 novels. But think it's like yeah, I'm halfway through this book. Oh, there's an ad for some cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely talk about that in ebooks, putting uh, ads in the middle. Mm-hmm. Well, if if you read 18th century novels, the publisher will have several pages um, at the beginning or the end, not in the middle, in which they advertise other books by yeah. the same publisher. And we, I think, we still have that, I guess, in the yeah. end of books and. You know, uh, uh, you know things saying other things by the publisher, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Other books by this author. There's yeah. just that list. That's that. an advertisement. Mm-hmm. Or the first chapter of the next book, or something. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I wonder if advertising, like propaganda, is a word that needs to be defined socially rather than directly that is um if if i were to say to you um i just read such and such a book and i uh, found it very impressive um you think i was a friend giving a recommendation but if i took out did skywriting about it <laughs> um you might call it advertising even if i just were so imbued by it that i wanted the whole world to know yeah 
So uh, is advertising defined by the notion that the person sending the message intends to gain for himself, whereas recommendations and such are defined by the person trying to help others? And if that's the case, if you really believe in your product, is it still advertising? Hmm. Interesting. I really believe in my website. <laughs> right. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, but you know what? I, I don't actually try and think of a lot of ways to advertise it. I think let people find it. That's, that's uh, I, I just think, you know, if, you're, if, if there's a difference between making something available and thrusting it upon someone. With all due respect, Jesse, um, one of the things I admire about SFF Audio is the very detailed, useful list of things discussed in this podcast that goes with the listing of each podcast. And from what I know about search engine optimization, you're not just letting people find it. The fact that you've done this has made it much, much more likely that people will find SFF Audio well, when they're I interested. I can't say that I can't say that that wasn't put in there to avoid that. But what I my logic was, I can't remember what episode I discussed something. <laughs> Um, and you know the title we we didn't put titles on them right they're just numbered so if I want to like for example I was telling Scott um, was it two days ago episode uh, number 74 was the one where uh, he oh no I was reading Mm -hmm. him a book that he had sent me that he had passed on right Mm -hmm. and then that he was became very interested in when I started talking about it uh, and that was a book called um, The Reapers Are the Angels by Alden Bell so uh, I happened across uh, that when I was, you know, fiddling around on the website, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll listen to that and see what I, see what Scott had to say about it." And then, to my surprise, it was me who was talking about this book and saying, "You know what? This doesn't look like the standard urban fantasy or whatever it was." And 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 now I think this this is like one of the most impressive books Scott's read in in years, right? Yeah, it's excellent. Very very good. So yeah, it's a it's a cover. zombie novel, um, but it's kind of a southern gothic. Um, Flannery O'Connor was the were, were the words that made you excited. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Flannery O'Connor with zombies is is what the the patient <laughs> said. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, and that was the subject of the first good story podcast as well. Yeah, it prompted you to make a whole podcast. It did. It. Yeah, it did. Which is very interesting because. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't get royalties for it, Scott, then it's not advertising. But if you did get royalties for it, it would be? Um, probably so. Maybe so. <laughs> you know, we don't, and we've had this offer before, you know, we don't link to uh, Amazon. Everybody everybody who seems to have a book blog, they, they link to Amazon so that they can get their little cut of right. whatever, you know, whenever somebody clicks through and buys or whatever. Uh, I think we've been pretty deliberate about not doing that. We've got Google ads on the side, but we don't interfere. Yeah, we normally, with, right? we normally, when we publish a review, try to link back to the publisher. Yeah, you know who sent it in or whatever. But um, no, we don't. We don't have links to specific booksellers or anything like that. We never have. No. So you, you guys are making a decision about moral worth, and this book, the Space Merchants, 
seems to be implying things about moral worth. Do you find that the space merchants is just reinforcing your sense about advertising? Does it make you rethink it? Does it color it? Does it resist it? Uh, for me, it? It, it reinforces my thoughts about, it's like the, the worst parts of what's going on right now in politics and everything. Um, you know, just, just the fact, you know, I enjoy watching a show, I've mentioned it before, called Morning Joe in the mornings. And sometimes when they start to talk about politics, they're, they're not talking about who's got the best idea to run things or to have this office or that office. They're talking about, well, this guy, you know, he scored some points by kind of doing this. And, and this guy is now looked favorably because he did that. And um, just the fact that there are, you know, are people like Karl Rove and, uh, you know, I'm, I can't remember the, the guy's name that's kind of in the Obama side of things. Um, but they both have the same function, and that function is advertising. It's not idea promotion. It's advertising. It's, and, it sounds like color commentary, you know, Yeah. Uh, rather than, than uh, this team deserves to win. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it is a game, right? Yeah. It's suddenly a game. And, and you know, uh, if you if – you, I, I don't actually get Fox News, but I've seen lots of clips of it. and. Mm-hmm. It seems to be, you know, this guy's scoring points, and and uh, here's the talking point for the day. Let's talk about this. This is an interesting subject. Yeah, it, it it's it, it's not. Uh, uh, they don't tend to bring a lot of books into the subject anymore, <laughs> right? It's That's not even sure. like the Communist Manifesto. It's just uh, Connie's or whatever, right, right? Right. You know, um, I just won an, an election. Um, I'm I got elected to the local school board. Congratulations. And thank you very much. And and the way that I, you know, I, I was just like, okay, I'm putting myself out there and these are my list of qualifications and then just let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, I won the thing. And, um, you know, but there, there is a different aspect because a local election, people kind of know each other. I mean, this is not a huge town. But it's it just, um, uh, it, it, it's a negative thing to me to, the, the whole election process is, a little bit demeaning and, and it's almost like the, the type of a person who would do the things. Well, what didn't Douglas Adams say, you know, whoever can make themselves uh, get elected president shouldn't be allowed to do that. <laughs> shouldn't be allowed to do the job. It's, it's because it's because of advertising, in my opinion, um, the, the manipulation of language and images to get people to think a certain way that might not be factual is a very negative thing in the United States. And I think it may be be the biggest threat to um, our society that, that there is. So the book reinforced my, my entire thinking on, on that matter. What if the problem is not that it isn't factual, but how you look at the facts? Yeah. And, I can certainly see that. Um, a lot of that is smearing cap- campaigns. They're not even talking about themselves. They're just trying to put down the other yeah, guy. You know, we've got, you know, it, at its simplest in the United States, we have conservative versus liberal, right? And they each side, I believe, honestly thinks that they're correct. You know, I don't believe in these, you know, right or left-wing conspiracies where we're looking for world domination. It's that 
you know, the average liberal believes that this is the way that things should be run, and the average conservative believes that this is the way it should be run, and they're all trying to convince people that they're correct, but the way that they're doing it, it, it's not like there's a big debate going on. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem that way to me. Um, it's it's just, you know, imagery and feeling and and things like that. The assertion based on Nielsen is that when you actually have a debate, people don't attend to it. Mm-hmm. That it that the the political parties are giving us sound bites because they know that saturation again you you can mm-hmm. get that same message across the way Coca-Cola does mm-hmm. by having it happen again and again and again whereas asking people to sit down for 15 minutes worth of real discussion and real interchange of ideas you can lose 90% of your audience doing that and mm-hmm. ultimately you need the 100% to vote right so yeah. I'm, I'm not agreeing with that. I agree with you completely, Scott, that I, I don't see a lot of probing political conversation um, in the public sphere. But the argument that's being made by those who control the, the, the power to send the argument out um, is that, in fact, people aren't listening. You know, um, Fox News does it better than Air America and... The proof of the pudding is people are listening to Fox News and they're not listening to Air America. And if you arrange to have someone from each side get together and talk, you wind up at best with a shouting match uh, the way uh, John Stewart did with, uh, what's his name, Hannity, Sean Hannity. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it becomes a fun episode. It doesn't settle any political issues. Um, I guess what I'm saying is the fate is our fate is not in our stars, it is in us. And it's pretty scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it, it is kind of an amazing thing, too, that um, Jon Stewart is uh, one of the people that is making the most sense about everything. Um, you know, I saw him in an interview on Fox and in an interview on MSNBC in which he was, you know, basically telling both of them that... You know, you guys aren't doing things correctly. You you guys have these specific things that you're doing, and you're not helping. Uh, I recall, uh, what was it? Hard. What was the name of that show that was on C- Crossfire? John Stewart yeah. appeared on Crossfire one time, and uh, I, I think he took that show off the air after that. <laughs> I mean, it was that was it for that show, because he said you guys are harming the United States by what you're doing, and yeah. uh, we, that, that was a good interview. <laughs> That was really, it was. Yeah, it really was. And But it's amazing that it's Jon Stewart, a comedian, um, you know, uh, um, oh, shoot, why can't I recall the guy's name? In early 1900s, uh, Will, was it Will somebody? Will Rogers. Will Rogers, Will Rogers. yeah. I mean, he's Will Rogers today. I mean, the, the things that he's yeah. doing have been around for a long time. But uh, it's, it's Will Rogers who's running around telling everybody um, that, hey, you guys are really doing damage here. And, and indeed, and people listened. At, one of the, the reasons that someone like, not that there are so many, I wish we had more, that someone like John Stewart or Will Rogers is able to succeed is that they are able to boil things down to a memorable line. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, yeah, and that, that's what comedy like, is, isn't it? Is it like almost almost a form of of do you call that advertising? <laughs> I mean, it's not well, really, but it, I, it's the I, same I sphere, isn't it? I, yeah. You know, I mean, Rogers has been dead for years, mm-hmm. and yet I still know. I mean, I still know that he said, "I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat." <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. I'd, <laughs> right mm-hmm. to this day. When you consider the Republicans versus Democrats, that line still echoes. Yeah. I don't know what justified him in saying it at the time, but it it wound up sticking. There's a, there's a line in in our novel. There is no doubt the linking a sales message to one of the great prime motivations of the human spirit does more than sell goods. It strengthens the motivation, helps it come to the surface, provides it with focus. And what somebody like a comedian does is go for those prime motivations. You know, you make jokes out of things that scare us or delight us or cater to our hopes or make us understand the world in a new way. Every joke has got to, in some sense, be a revelation. And if it's a revelation of something that's, that's primal, it strengthens our sense of the importance of that thing. It's going back to what you were saying, Jesse, about corporate advertising just flexing its muscles and saying, here I am, pay attention to me. And that's never going to come out of thoughtful debate. Yeah, I I heard a podcast the other day talking about uh, when you're doing, uh, just just trying to make your your public, the public aware of your brand, brand recognition, right? Um, there's no return on investment. It's not like you invest $100,000 and then you see, oh, on the balance sheet, we, we increased our market share. What it is is it's, it's, it's putting it out there, right? So why does Coca-Cola advertise on television? It's not because, or anywhere, it's not because uh, people aren't aware of their, this amazing product called Cola, and that they've got a special one called Coca-Cola, it's because if you don't advertise like that, you don't get this insidious in, in, into the brain, right? Mindshare. It, it drives out other thought. If it you're, it, it if colonizes you're the brain like, right. like that song. Exactly. It, 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 pro- it provides a way of setting the agenda, setting the, the stage, and so that... When, when something other comes up, you say, well, I, I don't even hear what you're saying because I already know what this is. So why, does, why do people who have not seen Transformers 1 because they were too young when it came out go to see Transformers 3? They weren't even aware that Transformers was a cartoon and a toy line in the 1980s. Why is this that they, something they need to go see? Because everybody's talking about it. Who's everybody? All the friends. How, how are they talking about? Did you see that ad for Transformers? It looks good. Mm-hmm. My wife plugs her ears during the previews at the movie theaters because in an effort to make the movie look good, the previews show you so much of the movie that it takes a genuine act of uh, a conscious act, a strenuous act of suspension of your own knowledge in order to be able to see the movie as if you didn't know what's going to happen. 
and she doesn't want to have to do that. So she just tunes out the previews. She's treating every movie like a murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, or like a comedy. They, they show the funniest moments in the movie, and then uh, when you go see it, you already saw the joke before, so you're not enjoying it. I saw, exactly. I saw a movie that was really interesting. Um, uh, recently came out called Cedar Rapids, and I saw the trailer for it, and, and, and when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, this is just going to be an, another comedy. And it is another comedy, but the trailer gives a completely different tone than does the, the movie. The movie sort of, uh, uh, it is a comedy, but it's, it's uh, much slower paced and more, more about you know, a, a story arc, uh, uh, you know, sort of traditional Hollywood story arc, um, and it feels a lot different than the trailer does. The the trailer takes little bits out and puts those together and gives you a different story. Right. So, uh, the the trailer knows how to sell the movie, right? The people who put the trailer together and the people who are making the movie, they have another another goal, which is to tell a story. So and in that case, it's false advertising. It's false advertising, but but uh, effective, right? Because if you reduce it down to something, you know. Uh, story-wise, here's a story about somebody who's doing something boring. <laughs> this is not something that they're going to watch. They want to see the funny bits and then see the funny situations. So I, I must say, uh, parenthetically, um, I thought it was a terrific movie. I, I think really it's a very a special little, little uh, I don't know, coming-of-age story in a way. Well, a, it was coming-of-age, but I think it's also about the nature of friendship. Absolutely. I mean, the, the way those characters change their relations to each other and discover each other, I think, is wonderful. Um, and if the fact that it was actually filmed in Ann Arbor um, doesn't hurt from my viewpoint. And the fact that it's called nominally set in Cedar Rapids, where my wife taught for one year while I was in graduate school, also doesn't hurt my attachment to the movie. But I do think that it's a terrific movie. And I, this is an unpaid recommendation, not advertisement. <laughs> it's not completely off topic either, because it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, the, the, the setup is that he, the main character is going for a, a conference, right? Uh, a uh, insurance sales conference or insurance association yep. conference, and the the uh, the highlight is going to be the awarding of the double double diamond, you know, award or something. The um, uh, there's something there's something uh, more to this this particular comedy than there is to a lot of uh, a lot of the more. Um, Drug-based comedies. I, I I think there's quite a bit of drug use in this movie as well, but right. a lot of a lot of comedy is about pooping and and um, <laughs> pooping and drug use and uh, I don't know animals in bathrooms and stuff. Like that. <laughs> um, this one's this one's a little got a little more depth to it. I I think I think it's worth a, worth a look. Yeah, as is the space merchants. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, and you know there uh, there is no uh, looks like there's no legitimate audiobook uh, produced for this thing yet, which is kind of surprising. Wow! But there used to be, and it's out of print. I I, I don't think I I think the one we heard is 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 got to be like an amateur version or a um a book for the blind version. Oh, because um it, it's unattributed, and uh, I don't I. Uh, I don't. I don't know who who the narrator even is. Although he was quite good. It was a decent, yeah, decent narrator. He's a pretty, pretty. Yeah, I think he got a couple of pronunciations wrong here and there, but it's generally pretty good. 
I mean, his tone of voice kind of matched what I thought of the main character as. Yeah, being like, and it's 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 also nice to have a first person uh, novel. Uh, I think I think it, it, it does suffer from, uh, like I was saying before, you can sort of see that it wasn't written by one person all <laughs> who had carefully revised it. It feels like it it could still use a couple more smoothings out here and there because it, it does have different tone, uh, different focus. and But the turns of Fraser, uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and there's lots of, plenty of great ideas in it. So, yeah, I'm definitely, definitely a fan of this book. Yep, me too. Hey, Eric, Sounds do you like think, a wrap, uh, gentlemen. Okay, it's <laughs> yeah, pretty long. Don't come home, eh? I was going to say, do you think uh, Kanzi is connected to Kami in some way? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we, we, we covered that a little bit, didn't we? We covered that? This is published during the McCarthy era. I don't see how anybody could, at the time, not have made the connection. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and there, there are equivalent considerations, but at a very different tone in science fiction of the time, like the Puppet Masters, uh, Heinlein's novel, where you know they take over your mind and you just have the fifth column. They're just all of one mind, and that's how the concies are treated here, as if they are not individuated at all. They just have this this massive hive mind. That that particular image of what it means to be in the political um, descent from the establishment is common in the 1950s. It's, it's the giant ants in them. Uh, just another example. In the novel, uh, this one, it actually... There's a, a scene where I think he's is he trapped in an elevator, uh, and he's he's a he's a Connie spy or he's a, he's working for the the, the conservationists. Uh, no, it's not conservationists. It's, yeah, it's uh, called conservationists. Yeah, that's right. Conservationists. Yeah, I, I thought it was consumer at first, and then later on I found that it was conservationists. Yeah, it's it's pretty early that they they actually explain it, but it seems. Uh, anyways, he he he's in the elevator, and and I think. They spray scent on him and say, "the the it's like a, a multimedia advertisement, and uh, or maybe he's on an airplane or so, a rocket or something, and he he's sprayed with a smell of women's uh, women's underarms or something, and I say this is how you swell smell to your man, <laughs> and <laughs> and then he, the guy beside him says, oh that's disgusting, and he's thinking it's disgusting, and he says." Uh, that's really this advertising these days, and and the guy, uh, the main character is is defending his business, even though he finds it disgusting as well. And he says, um, he says, uh, oh, the uh, other guy says, uh, you know, I'm not anti-consumer, <laughs> consumer or anything at all. It's just, uh, don't you think they're taking it a little bit far? <laughs> and uh, of course, he has to backtrack a thousand a thousand yards because. He, he almost got himself into trouble by being uh, a Connie. Concy. Yeah, a Concy. Sorry, Concy. Right. Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, haven't, I haven't seen the, the pictures that are supposed to appear on cigarette packs in the United States soon, but I can't imagine that they are any less disgusting. Uh, have you than, not had them before? Is this a new they're making them more shocking now. They're making pictures. No, they, they used not to, just... Yeah, they used to just have words, but now they'll oh, be pictures. We've had pictures for years. Hmm. We've had pictures for years. Like I think they're going to show the inside of lungs and stuff that are rotting of... teeth and all, all sorts of and yeah. people with tracheotomies. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. 
So which, the, the, that's a, that's an interesting case, right? Because uh, you've got a huge industry, tobacco industry, that has a legal product, but there's a giant lobby against it, which is the anti-tobacco industry, right? And then you say, what, what is the anti-tobacco industry? Well, that's uh, I guess all the people who run all those cancer foundations, right? Um, all the people who don't like <laughs> smoking. Um, it's a it's a consortium of other another pressure lobby group that manages to get uh, their interests shown out. I think it's actually a simpler group than you just defined. I think it's insurance companies. Hmm. They don't want to pay for lung cancer. They'd much rather you had a heart attack. <laughs> lung cancer is a, a long, debilitating disease, whereas heart attack is quick and over. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Right, health, yeah. health, health insurance has money to be made in getting rid of cancer. More, more uh, traumatic uh, accidents, uh, fewer long, debilitating accidents. Exactly. It's so the long, pro- drawn-out diseases that cost them the money. So they're pro-heart disease? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say they're pro-heart disease, but if they have to decide where to put their lobbying dollars, they're going to put them against the things that cost them the most money. That almost does us some good. But uh, on the other hand, in Canada, right, where we've had these, these on-cigarette packages for a long time, everybody pays for their health insurance directly to the government in taxes. And we, we've had them there, uh, not because the insurance industry is, is pushing on it, but because there are people who are, you know, in, in the private uh, you know, anti-cancer <laughs> industry. There is a, there is an industry. You know, the Canadian Cancer Society, the American Cancer Society. There sure. is their job is to take money from people uh, who've experienced bereavement from cancer and pressure for changes that reduce cancer and also perhaps spend money on research. But that is an industry in itself. Right. Yes. So there are executives whose job it is to hire advertising agencies to pressure to show you know to use the money that they're they are intaking to get things done. So it it it's not just you know it's not just a private insurance trying to manipulate. It's because that's like Canada manipulating itself. Right. We're we're trying to convince people not to to smoke because it's bad for the bad for the healthcare costs. Uh, I, I, this may go off topic, uh, but people often manipulate themselves, and I don't mean to Absolutely. be brilliant here. Absolutely. P- people maintain contradictory ideas. Boy, I really need to lose weight, and my goodness, that cream puff looks good. I'll lose weight tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. We could end it, right it would there. all be it would all be easier if at the end we just knew that we were with someone who loved us absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Here's think there's I, I think there are several churches that sell sell that particular line as well. <laughs> <laughs> if right. not, yes, if not there is. <laughs> but enough about Scientology. <laughs> think, you know, I think that's one of the few ones that doesn't do that surprisingly. Oh. Uh, I'm not sure what Scientology is selling other than, I think, I think what Scientology sells is actually that you can be a better person now rather than you have a special place in, in an afterlife, right? 
Well, think, you could also become immortal, but but yes, you can uh, become a better person well, right now. I don't think that's the. I don't think that's the the the. That's like later on down the road when you've already right. brought into it. Right. Right. When you say, "I already am a better person," you've given me uh, seventeen stripes uh, for paying all this money. Well, and and you get to be able to levitate and uh, all kinds of good things. Have you uh, have you done much research into uh, the origins of of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology in in the pulps? Uh, not a lot of research. I, I know the standard story, you know, I just that that Hubbard was a successful science fiction writer, and somebody praised him for that. And he said, "Well, you know, if I really wanted to make money, I'd found my own religion." And then he thought, "That is a good idea. <laughs> that is a good idea. Exactly." Hey. Wrote Dianetics. It's it's full of all the same language that you see uh, in the some of the science fiction of the time. In fact. Uh, a. Van Vogt. Um, yeah, he got into it. it got, yeah, but uh, yes, he, indeed, he was the president of the California Scientology Society. Um, but his, he kept writing science fiction, whereas Hubbard stopped. Um, and in Van Vogt's science fiction, you see uh, engrams and so on, all of the language of Dianetics, which came out of some uh, psych- psychology... Uh, Concepts that were in the air in the in the 30s um, are in Van Vogt's science fiction, but he's not selling them as Scientology. He's just you know turning them into science fiction. His notion in uh, of the anti-Aristotelian logic, the world of nulle, mm-hmm. all is based on the idea that our thinking is what is restraining us, and we can just make a fundamental change in the way we think, and then we have all of these freedoms. So. Um, uh, isn't that uh, Nietzsche? <laughs> well, I, I think Nietzsche, maybe I'm mistaken, but I no, think I'm Nietzsche just is asking us to throw off shackles. Yes. Uh, whereas, right. whereas this is more like the idea of the, the song that's colonizing our brain. We have one thing we're thinking we need to be thinking something else. Right. Um, but who am I? I'm certainly no Ubermensch. I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're 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 pretty high on the on the mensch scale though. <laughs> you're very I think kind you're metrosexual. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 